Welcome to the City Life Podcast. I'm Tim Woody, the pastor of City Life Church in downtown Fort Worth. There is purpose for your life. There's a destiny you have yet to walk into, and there is hope regardless of what you're facing today. I encourage you to open your heart now to what God will be speaking to you over these next few minutes. Uh, I'd like for you to get your Bibles open to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. We're going to read through verse 18. That's my primary text today. I need you to hold that in your Bible. We'll be hitting that here in just a few minutes. Also, uh, you know, this is one of those sermons where you really need to have some notes and jot some things down, jot some scriptures down. uh, Because I, uh, and then also might be the type of sermon where you're going to come back and 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 even listen to it again because there's I'm going to pack a lot into here. A lot I'm cramming into this message today, but I feel all of it is necessary. The primary scripture of those, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. You know, the evidence of the return of Jesus, it's everywhere. It's all over the place. In fact, uh, recently I've been asked by a lot of people from in the church and outside the church as well regarding questions about the return of the Lord, the battle of Armageddon, what's happening in the Middle East, and how that that is in parallel with the scriptures. And, and so today we're going to take a look at some of the current events and we're going to look at what the scriptures say as well. And my goal is for us to discern the times that we live in and, and so that we can consider and, and, uh, and how we should respond to the signs of the times. I mean, basically, what should Christians be doing right now? And that's the big question. That's what I'm going to end with today. So the title of my message today is The Truth About Jesus' Soon Return. I firmly believe that the return of Jesus is near. Uh, I live as if it's imminent. Uh, Years ago when I first started doing my ministry work as a preacher, uh, people would would uh, a lot of times ask me to preach or to teach about the end of the age, about end of the age prophecy, and I would be candid with you, I wouldn't touch it. And it's not because I was intimidated by the subject or I wasn't well versed or schooled in it. It wasn't that I didn't know the scriptures, but it was one thing. It's I felt I was too young. And, and, and I, I felt that I, it was important that I use wisdom in any type of teaching like that. I didn't want to fail to use wisdom. So my common response to people was this, and they would typically shake their heads like, well, are you crazy? But I would say, hey, when I get gray hair, then I will teach and I will preach about prophecy and the end of the age. And I still feel that's a smart answer because I, I believe this, and I'm even seeing it happen today. I believe that a lack of wisdom when it's, when it's accompanied by preaching about the, or teaching about prophecy in the end of the age, it causes some confusion, it causes anxiety, and, uh, and it even turns people away from the church as well as the gospel because of some of the things that people say. So uh, today, and I'll be honest with you, I've seen even recently over the past several days and weeks a lot of uh, what I would call sketchy interpretations of prophetic scriptures that are coupled with current events that, and I believe they have the potential to lead people astray and get people distracted by what I would call the sensational. And so today I'm just going to use a lot of scripture during about, probably about the second half of, the, of, of my sermon. And, I, and I'm not, 
I have no goal to come across as some type of sensationalist. So we're going to use the scriptures because the scriptures are our foundation. But the current surge of concern about the end of the age has been precipitated by the horrific actions of Hamas and their terrorist invasion into Israel and the absolutely demonic acts that have been perpetrated. And, and we've talked about that for several weeks. You guys know where I stand on that. And, and the facts and the truth is, is just that's just what's going on. Uh, There's a lot of confusion, though, about what is happening in the Middle East and what it might have to do with scriptures. I have heard people saying, well, this is the the Battle of Armageddon is about to happen. Or other people saying, hey, this is nothing to be concerned about. We're just going to go about our daily lives. Let's ignore it all. So those are some of the two extremes that are out there. So I want to start with an interesting question, which has to do with Israel. It's what's all the fuss about Israel? I mean, why should Christians even care? I mean, should we believe everything that's being reported in the news? I mean, we don't live there. Most of us are not Jewish. And so what's the fuss? I mean, that's that's a secular nation anyway, right? Well, the nation of Israel is very important to our faith, and you'll understand that today. So first of all, let's take a look at this. Let's go back to the foundation. The Bible... The Word of God is a huge book. There's a lot that's in there. And it is primarily written by Jews to Jews, and it's the foundation of our faith. Now, in some of these, some of these things that I'm saying, if you want to take pictures and snapshots of, of what I'm putting up on the screens, you feel free to do that. But uh, the Old Testament is full of what Rebecca shared earlier, types and shadows for us as Christians, and it chronicles the past and the present and the future of a nation, which is Israel. And it literally is from the beginning of Genesis with Abraham all the way to the very end of Revelation. That's our Bible, the past and the future of Israel. So in the book of Genesis, we see that God, he, uh, he promised a particular specific parcel of land in the Middle East. He, he, he said, Abraham, this is your land for you and your descendants. And there is no end date that's put on that. Uh, it's where the nation of Israel is today. And it was promised by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob some 4,000 years ago. And, and please understand, this, is about, this all happened about 2,500 years before there even was a Muslim faith, before that religion came into being. In fact, Jacob was renamed Israel by God. That's why they're often called the children of Israel, the descendants of, of Jacob. And the Bible tells the story uh, from beginning to end, really, of the turbulent uh, times that, that Israel has faced, is facing, and will face uh, yet, yet today, at the same time, there are many Muslim uh, Palestinians. They say that land belongs to them. So <clears throat> let me explain a little bit of that to you before we could get into the return of Jesus. Historically, Jews, they were exiled from uh, this land on three different occasions, but they always return because it is the promise of God. What God says happens. So Jacob and his family, they were exiled into, into Egypt, and they were there for about 400 years. This is during the famine. They came out with Moses and, and came back to the promised land uh, with, with a huge, huge amount of, of, uh, of the, what were called the children of Israel. 
And hundreds of years later then, the nation of Israel, they, they fell into moral decay and idolatry. And so God, God said, if you don't correct your ways, there are going to be problems ahead. They didn't correct their ways. They were exiled then into Babylon. And that lasted for 70 years. And then they came back and reestablished their land. They reestablished their nation. So that was the second time they left. And then there was a third time. And this happened uh, in, the, in the era of the Roman Empire. It was about 30, uh, about 30 35 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ the, uh, the Roman, under the Roman Emperor Titus and this was part of the uh, part this, this was an act of God that allowed the, the Roman Empire to do this. They came in and destroyed Jerusalem and, and they intentionally scattered Jews across the, the nations of the earth and this was, uh, this was ultimately because the, uh, the people of Israel rejected Jesus. The Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah. So, so uh, that dispersal of people, this happened and, and, it, and it went on for 1900 years, a long time. That's, that's was basically God saying, hey, you reject the Messiah that I sent you, so this, there's going to be a punishment. But so what, the, what happened during that time is the Romans then renamed the people in that area, they renamed them Palestinians. So, the, and then therefore the, the area where they lived, they called it Palestine. Now they called it this to discourage the Jews from ever returning. So there, at that time, in that time, the, the alliteration of the word Palestinians was the same alliteration as the term Philistines. They are not the same people, but, uh, but what, what the Romans did is they said, hey, if we call these people Philistines, which are you know, it's Palestinians today, then the Jews are not going to want to come back. And, and there has never been a, a nation in this area of the world since then. There's never been a nation called Palestine. It, it has never existed. It has always been a territory of landowners, property owners, ever since the Roman occupation. But in the 19th century, things began to change. Jews began to slowly return to their territory due to the anti-Semitic uh, persecution that was happening all through Europe. And they built new agricultural communities and, and towns. The way they did that is they would come in and they would purchase land. So they would buy the land and they began to establish these communities. And they were really hoping to build a new society that could resist the persecution that was going on. And uh, <clears throat> there were some, uh, but of course there were some other Muslim at that time. Now the Muslim religion had come into effect. There were other Muslim property owners in that territory who didn't like the idea of Jews purchasing property next to them. Well, things begin to begin to escalate around the end of World War One, where the British they installed this person by the name of Muhammad Amin Al Husseini as the leader of the Palestinian territory and the Palestinian landowners. Now he was a violent, radical leader who then sided with a man by the name of Adolf Hitler during World War Two, and he initiated. What we, what we see as organized violence against these Jewish landowners, these Jewish communities. And this created the pattern that the Muslim Palestinians have continued to this day. And they, it's, it's just basically an expression of hatred of the Jews through violence. There's no better way to put it. 
So then after World War II, after the Holocaust, Europeans, they began to assist the Jews because they were realizing how horrible the Holocaust was, even out of guilt or whatever. They began assisting Jews in purchasing land in, in, this, uh, in Palestine. And the, with all this newly purchased land, there was a great influx of Jews from all over the world so they could have their own area, so they could legally return. And it was legal, re, legal returning to their region because they lived on this purchased land. So then this led, it was moving very rapidly, and it led to the United Nations attempting to establish then two nation states uh, in this Palestinian territory that had been for thousands of years just a territory of landowners. So they're going to establish one for the Jews, and the other, which would be the nation of Israel, and the others, and they, and they would establish that on their purchased land that they already own. And the other would be for the Palestinians. Now, the Jewish leaders accepted the offer. And Israel became a nation again in 1948. So again, the Jews are returning to the land that, that was promised to Abraham. The, the Palestinians, though, they rejected the offer to have their own nation. And they have continued to this day to simply be a federation of landowners. That's what it is. It is no other nation that's there. So, and, and, and even uh, the, the, the very day that Israel became a nation in 1948, the Palestinians, these Palestinian landowners, they declared war on the nation of Israel along with some of the other surrounding Muslim nations. And, uh, and, and this just continued to escalate. It's, it's basically what we're continuing to see today. And it's been a constant struggle, but Israel has become stronger and stronger and stronger. It is one of the most, if not the most powerful nation on the face of this earth to this day militarily. Uh, but there's this group now that we know of Hamas, that's a terrorist group that uh, they control this area. Uh, it's called the Gaza Strip. And they have literally a stated goal of killing every single Jew, every single Jew that exists and eliminating the state of Israel, the nation of Israel. So that's a little bit of the background. Just this, that's for education purposes. Now, <clears throat> You still might say, well, so what? What does that have to do with me? I'm an American Christian, and I'm not Jewish, and I'm not, I'm not in Israel. Well, listen here. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will play an important role in the deliverance of the nation of Israel at the end of the Great Tribulation. It's in the Bible, and it's prophesied. So you're already in. All right. Let's move on to this next point here. This is important. God's promises have never expired, nor do they ever expire. <clears throat> it's, because, it's because God had this covenant with Israel. And even though they definitely have acted up quite a bit, as we see in the scriptures, God still has not rejected them, even as Rebecca shared earlier, and that was an Old Testament passage. See, his covenant promises over them and for them and for the nation of Israel, they have not expired, nor will they ever expire. And I think one of the most amazing things is Israel is the only nation on the face of the earth that once was and then was eradicated and the people were scattered throughout the world and it actually has come back to be a nation again. That is amazing. There's nothing that's happening like that in the history of the world. So <clears throat> according to the timeline of scriptures, there is a next great event. It doesn't involve Israel as a nation specifically, but it involves all believers, and that is the rapture of the church, called 
also called the blessed hope in the scriptures. Uh, I'm going to explain a lot more on this in a moment, but to simplify it, Christians are going to depart this earth and rise to meet Jesus in the air. And then the wrath of God is going to be poured out and released on this earth. And at that point, there's going to be a seven-year tribulation. So seven years of tribulation and the rule of the Antichrist is going to happen. That is what we find in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. And that's really important if you want to understand uh, prophecy of the end times. Now, what's recorded in Revelation 6 through, uh, 6 through 19, that is a time that has never, like, has never been seen before on this earth. We are not there right now by any means. But if you hear people kind of cherry-picking scriptures out of Revelation 6 through 19, I would just look at the, the scripture reference and they say, aha, this is happening now. Oh, no, it, just hold on, just relax exhale. They probably don't have gray hair. Not that I'm anything special, but we will not be here when that occurs. Okay? Uh, Revelation 6 through 19 begins a very clear sequential prophetic timeline. One event initiates another event, which initiates another event, and it doesn't hop around and jump around. It is the clearest uh, the clearest timeline of prophecy that we find in the entire Bible. Most prophecy in the scripture is what I call discursive. So it's, it's broken up and you see, you see some peaks and mountaintops and you see various things and the prophets would speak about something that happens that's going to happen in 20 years and then they're going to speak about something that's going to happen in 2,000 years. And so it's discursive, but not Revelations chapter 16 through 19. Now, that is important for today's teaching because raptured Christians, we will return with Jesus at something that's called the second coming, and we will liberate Israel at the battle of Armageddon. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. So again, this is at the end of a seven-year tribulation. And this is when the Jews at that point will see their Messiah. They will see him and they will accept him as their mighty deliverer. And that will be actually their salvation moment. But we as raptured Christians are actually going to arrive with Jesus as part of the armies of heaven to destroy the armies that are surrounding Israel as Jesus liberates Israel from the dominion and the domination of the Antichrist. That's part of your future if you're a Christian. And see, what will happen after that is that Jesus is going to take his throne in Israel and he's going to rule from Jerusalem for a thousand years. We call that the millennium. And we're going to be ruling as Christians. We will rule with him. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. The Antichrist, which is also known as the beast in the, uh, in the New and Old Testament, the beast and the false prophet, they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. So, you know, you, you don't want to be on the side of those who oppose Israel because if you're a Christian, you're going to fight to... to set Israel free at the battle of Armageddon and you're not going to get hurt either. So don't get scared. All right. And it's because you've been raptured. That's important. So that's why Israel is important to us as believers. That's one of the main reasons, several other, but that's a main reason. But let's take a look at this rapture thing because this is a, a pivotal event. 
It, it's also known as the blessed hope. It is this catching away of the saints prior to this seven-year tribulation. And it will happen in a moment, as described as like in, in a twinkling of an eye. And there will be no time to get right with God in that moment. It will happen quickly. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. I asked you to find that, locate that. I want us to read that together. Take a look at it in your Bibles to make sure I'm actually telling you the truth because I could be making this stuff up. Well, no, you got plenty of scripture here, but this is the main one I want you to be looking at. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, and I always read from the, uh, or typically most of the time read from the New American Standard Version. It says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, He doesn't actually come to earth, but he descends into the clouds with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who remain will be caught up, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And Paul says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Prophecy brings us comfort. Now that is a profound passage because it describes the future arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. There's this great proclamation and the resurrection of believers and and the scripture encourages us to eagerly anticipate the event because it's part of God's great redemptive plan and it underscores the, the, the rapture as this this, this pivotal moment for all believers and we anticipate it with hope we anticipate it with excitement and, and it's this deep longing for unity with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for eternity nothing can change after that for you and me for those who rise to meet him See, this majestic moment, it's going to be like nothing the world has ever witnessed, and they'll make all kinds of, ups, all kinds of stories about what happened and why it happened, but these, these spirits of deceased believers, uh, they will be miraculously reunited with their bodies, and, we will, and it'll be a supernatural body also, but we see that the, the graves will even be opened as this happens, and then we're going to rise to meet them. It'll be like, boom, boom. We will rise to meet them, in the air. We'll meet the Lord in the air with him. And this is a divine promise. This is a promise from God. I'll just put it this way. Just as sure as the sun is going to arise each day, this event is equally or even more so certain. Now, I know there are questions, well, where is that word rapture in the Bible? And I'll just explain this very quickly. The word rapture itself is not found in the scriptures, but it comes from the term in the passage I just read. It comes from the, this translated term, we will be caught up. And it's actually the term harpazo. It's just, you you got to say that. Say harpazo. Say harpazo. Now, harpa- now you're speaking Greek right there. Isn't that cool? You've just learned a new language. Harpazo. Now, what harpazo means is to seize, to snatch away, to take with force a rapid energetic event or to be raptured. So we could use the term the harpazo but that'd be kind of weird because we're not Greek and we're not, we're not, it, it, it just, it wouldn't make sense to people because it's not an understood English word, but rapture is. So here's what the Apostle Paul said about the rapture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verse 51. I'm going to put these scriptures up on the screen rapidly. 
He says, behold, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Kind of a different explanation of the exact same event, but using the similar verbiage. So our bodies are going to be transformed during the rapture into these eternal bodies. And I just say that's a pretty nice benefit, because that means no more sickness, no more pain, no more physical affliction. You don't even have to eat healthy anymore. You can just have what you want. We'll we'll have these heavenly bodies instantly. I think that's pretty cool. So what does the Bible, though, say about the timing of the rapture or the time of the rapture? That's important to, to talk about. See, Jesus, he tells us this, and this is recorded in Luke chapter number 17, verses 26 through 30. He says this, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so will it also be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, and they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot left Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be, it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. So, so Let's look at the examples of Noah and Lot. As, as we shared earlier, the Old Testament is full of types and shadows for us. So these are types and shadows of the rapture. And, these are, and, and we actually, in, if we examine what was going on at those times, we will see very clear signals that the rapture is near, that Jesus is coming very soon. So the days of Noah are described in Genesis chapter uh, 6, verse 5. By just a few scriptures here. The Lord saw the wickedness of mankind was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of their heart was only on evil continually. Sounds like today, right? Okay, Genesis chapter 6, verses 12, uh, 11 through 12. It says the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. The earth was filled up with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for humanity had corrupted its way upon the earth. And that's Genesis 6, 11, and 12. So the days of Noah, scripturally, if you read all the scriptures about that time, and I just pulled a few out, it describes wickedness, it describes evil thoughts, evil motivations, talks about violence, corrupted ways, no concern for eternity. Essentially, that is all rejection of God. Sounds like today. But... Noah was prepared. He was warned to do something that sounded a little bit crazy, but to be prepared. And Noah was lifted up above the earth, and then he returned to the earth to start over. So scripturally, this is the pattern that's going to be followed at the end of the age. What I just read about earlier, God removed his servants then before his wrath wrath was released and then brought them back to restore. And it's going to be the, the same thing that God will do with us. Now, we also see Lot and Sodom. That's also spoken of. And we see their stories and found in Genesis chapter 19. Not going to read all that. You can let that be your homework. But what was the core of Sodom's destruction? Well, I believe it started with rejection of God, which, again, is prevalent in the culture. And it's the worship of self. The prophet Ezekiel actually gave us a very, very precise description of why Sodom was destroyed. 
So let's look at that. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 through 50, he says, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, that means the city of Sodom and the, all of their small cities around the area, had arrogance, plenty of food, and carefree ease. She did not help the poor and the needy. They became haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. And so if you read everything about the days of, of Lot and including this prophecy here, we see that the, the culture in that area was full of arrogance, gluttony, lack of concern. They weren't serving the poor and they weren't taking care of the needy. Uh, there was this arrogance, this haughtiness. There was grumbling. They were finding fault with one another. They pursued their own evil desires. They were boastful. It was all about flattering other people. They were committing abominations before God. Ultimately, again, it is a complete rejection of God. And does that sound like today? Yeah. So what God did, God warned Lot. You're going to remove you. So God took them out, almost like raptured them. It's not like the rapture, but took them out and, and get out now. I'm going to take you out. I'm going to remove you before he pulled out, poured out his wrath upon Sodom and the cities around that area. Now, again, these are the patterns of Scripture that, talk, that, that help us to understand what the rapture is going to actually look like. Now, now, Peter explains this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, about how God will rescue us using those same illustrations about Lot and Noah. So again, it's found in another place in the scripture. Again, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, says, God did not spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if, he, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them example of what is coming for the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the perverted conduct of unscrupulous people, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So those who are interpreting the tribulation as described in, in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, that those are current events, they are not correct because we're still here. Unless for some reason you've already missed the rapture and, and the scriptures also say, don't be deceived, you haven't missed it. <laughs> See, that is what we see in Revelation 6 through 19 is the, the, the punishment of God and his wrath upon an unrepentant, reprobate world. Although I do believe that much of what is going to happen in Revelation 6 through 19 is already being set up. I can see that. We can see that clearly. But it's not here. Bottom line is this. And some people are afraid. And I'll just toss this in here. Some people are so afraid of, well, I don't want to accidentally take the mark of the beast. Well, first of all, you weren't, you weren't, you're not going to be here. And secondly, the mark of the beast is clearly associated with the worship of the Antichrist. So you, it, it says, you know, you take this mark, that, and it's going to be clear. Do you worship him or not? Where is he? He's not here. You've not taken that, the, the mark of the beast. Okay? So just relax. Okay? You're, you're, it's all good. It's all good. You're You're okay. Bottom line is this, God will rescue us from punishment. He will deliver us from his wrath just like he did with Noah, just like he did with Lot. 
but we also must live with expectancy because the rapture may occur at any moment and you may also die at any moment. <laughs> now, the rapture may happen today. And, I'm, and I fully believe in what I call the imminent return of Jesus. He is undoubtedly coming soon. But we don't know exactly when. Now, Mark, uh, and Jesus said this in Mark chapter 13, verses 32 and 33. He says, about that day or hour, no one knows. Now, I have heard prophecy preachers say this, and it actually gets quite hilarious sometimes. Well, we don't know the day or the hour, but the Bible doesn't say we won't know the year or the month or something like that. Okay, give it up. You know, don't stop, stop adding to the scriptures. That's what I want to tell them, but they don't have gray hair. All right, so anyway, no one knows. So about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the son. Who is the son? That's Jesus. <laughs> but the father alone. So watch out. Stay alert. For you do not know when the appointed time is. And that totally blows the idea of, well, there won't be a rapture. We'll all have to go through the tribulation. And at the end, we'll be at the Battle of Armageddon. And that's when it will all happen. Well, we, will, we would be able to calculate it based upon the date. We would be able to calculate the date, actually, based upon what we read in Revelation 6 through 19. So we will not know. Watch out. That's good. Stay alert. For you do not know when the appointed time is. And so if anyone says they know the time, they are mistaken. Jesus himself doesn't know it. And so don't put yourself above him. So how do we prepare? Now, this is important. This is the crux of the matter. All that was teaching. Now I'm going to preach at you, okay? See, prophecy always tells us what to do. As Rebecca read some prophecy earlier, she was reading from a prophetic book of Hosea. She was reading some prophecy. It told us, and it told, tells us, and it told them what to do. See, prophecy is not meant to satisfy your curiosity or, or to do some fortune telling or something like that. No, it is to instruct and it is to bring comfort like what we read in 1 Thessalonians. Now, Jesus said this, and this is in Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 through 46. He says, therefore, be on the alert for you do not know which day the Lord is coming. And he could have added in there, and I don't even know. <laughs> But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must be ready, be ready, be ready as well. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household slaves to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the slave, that's the servant, or you know, we, we interpret that as a servant of God, whom his master finds doing so when he comes. So again, that slave, that means servant of God, that would be us as Christians. And he says, be ready. Now, okay, you're, you're going to say, well, how? What are the specifics? I'm glad you asked, okay? See, there are two positive words that tell us what we are to do that are found in that passage of Scripture. Those two words are to be faithful and to be sensible. That's how, that's how we are to be ready, okay? 
What, are those, what did those words mean to the original hearers? Because we have to ask that. Well, what did it mean to the, the people who were hearing Jesus say this? And if you don't get anything out of the sermon, get this, because this is how what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be faithful. That means the definition of what it meant. When they heard that word, it means be, be trustworthy. Be scrupulous. Be honest. Upright. Truthful. Operating in the principles of Christian. It's also known as agape love. If you want to know what that is, read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and and I like to call that the love test. Is this operating in your life? Look at 1 Corinthians 13 and ask yourself the question, is this how I am? Is this how I'm operating? Because that will give you the guidelines right there. So that's being faithful. The second one, he says, is to be sensible. To be sensible in its original language means this. It suggests a deep understanding of people and situations showing supernatural discernment in dealing with them. So this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. This is not the typical definition of being wise or to be, you know, have some sense or common sense. No, this means to be supernaturally wise. And this is something that is only available to us as believers. And, and, but it also takes discipline. It takes prayer. It, it relies upon Holy Spirit empowerment. The Holy Spirit is so important in this whole picture. Because, and it requires a regular intake of the scriptures, the word of God, and, and hearing it preached. So how are you going to be ready for Jesus' soon return? Well, be faithful and sensible. And that's one of the reasons why we have church. Now keep this in mind. People are God's most prized possession. So we need to manage our relationships well. Take care of each other responsibly. Now, what are the possessions of God? Well, they are people. God cares more about people than he does about resources. I know you care about your house and your car, and God cares that, you know, things like that are working. But God cares more about you than any of that, all right? <laughs> so every one of us also, we have responsibility to the people who are around us. Think about this. What was the mandate that was given to us when Je- just before Jesus left this earth? Before his feet left this earth? It's called the Great Commission, and it's all about people. We must do everything that we can to spread the gospel, both individually and corporately as the church. That's why we need the church. We need to be able to use our talents and our spiritual gifts to be salt and light within our spheres of influence. I like to say within your cultural streets, you need to use your influence out there. Guys, we have a huge responsibility as Christians to not fall asleep on the job. Matthew chapter 24, I didn't take the time to read it today, but it gives a description of what I call the foolish servant. The foolish servant, which was not ready for the return of the master, he was more interested in squandering his master's blessings, and and he was basically associated with being lazy and unconcerned. And that is extremely difficult dangerous. You cannot live with an attitude of readiness for the imminent return of Jesus Christ if you're just going through the motions of life. Just enjoying the day and that's it. I believe believe in enjoying the day, but you know what? There's a lot more to this. And also I want to make it clear. You, every one of us, we have to choose either reward or punishment. Now I would be, I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't tell you this part. 
And, and, it, and it is, you get to make the choice. It is an either or based upon your readiness for Jesus soon return. See, belief is directly linked with behavior. What you believe dictates your behavior. So if you believe his return is imminent, you are going to be faithful and sensible. You will be. You will manage your relationships well. You're going to use your talents and your gifts to be salt and light. But if you believe that his return is far off, and we, you're going to end up re- living uh, a, an unwise and an unregulated life. Say, oh, I don't need the gifts of the Spirit. You're going to find yourself arrogant. You're going to find yourself violent, self-indulgent, gluttonous, and hypocritical, just like the people in Lot's day and the days of Noah. But the result is there will be punishment for that belief. See, belief is linked to behavior. Now, I want reward. And this is where, where the, the rubber meets the road. I want reward. I want to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things, and I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Enter the joy of your master. That's what I look forward to. And don't forget hell is real it's real for those who don't believe it's real for those who are not ready when the rapture occurs the description of hell is this this is taken I I took this from all the different places in scripture description of hell is this it's a separation literally from yourself it's like your your own self is, is dissected and bisected You have no position, there are no gifts, no talents, and no personality. It's full of weeping and sobbing, sorrowful wailing, fire, smoke, utter darkness, torture, gnashing, grating of teeth caused by rage and pain. Folks, hell is real, and there is no way I want to be cast into the lake of fire and we need to have that same attitude toward the others around us. We don't want them to be cast into the lake of fire for eternity because you don't just get cast into the lake of fire and you burn up and go away. No, it's an eternity of the judgment that you just saw and that I just read. It's because you weren't ready. So what do you do? Okay, remember, prophecy always tells us what to do, not just to satisfy curiosity. The challenge for us as believers is this. Do God's will on earth. You're his stewards on this earth. You're his servants of this earth. Use your wisdom. Use your gifts and resources to accomplish God's will and be in church. Again, that's why we have the church. And I will challenge you, that, and this church will challenge you to be ready for Christ's return and to be doing the will of God as long as you have breath on this earth and to not be asleep at the wheel when Jesus Christ returns. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25 says these words. It says, let's hold firmly to the confession of our hope. What is it? The hope of Jesus' return without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And I like this. And let us consider how we can encourage one another in love and good deeds. In other words, Christians, stop chewing on each other. Stop punching each other. Stop pulling each other down. I'm not talking to any of y'all. I'm talking to those who are watching online or somebody else. But I I have nobody in mind when I said that. 
Sometimes things need to be said because that is what the scriptures are saying. We need to consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds and not abandon meeting together as is the habit of some people, but encouraging one another. Church should be one of the most, it should be the most encouraging atmosphere you can get in. To be in these services and to be in your connect group, that's where you are encouraged. And it says we are to do this all the more as you see or as you discern or as the scriptures reveal to you that the day is drawing near. And that's what I just finished preaching about. We're supposed to do all of this. That's our mandate. So what are you going to do? Will you be ready? Will you escape the wrath of God and the tribulation that's going to come on this earth as recorded in Revelation? Like this, the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 2, verse 3. He says, how will we escape if we neglect so great salvation? See, we live in a world that's full of challenges and uncertainties. A lot of individuals focus solely upon their present life and However, those who put their hope in Jesus, there is a hope that extends far beyond this temporary existence. What we're doing on this earth is like a tiny little grain of sand (laughs) compared to uh, the whole timeline of eternity. So I want to ask you, are you prepared for this magnificent day? the rapture were to occur today, would you be among those who will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air? Just visualize this scene with me. Christians who have passed away. For me, it's my dad rising from the grave. They're going to be followed by those who are still living and instantaneously transformed into these heavenly bodies and we will immediately be in heaven where there will be no suffering or sorrow or fear of the future. All of that will be gone and we'll be reunited with loved ones who have already passed on in their faith in Jesus and we're going to be in this place of eternal joy, this place of perfect peace. My goodness, it would be so awesome. You will not be the, you won't care the least bit about leaving behind your your Camaro. I mean, you will not be the least bit concerned about leaving behind your Ford or whatever you have. We're going to be in this place of eternal joy and perfect peace. And so rather than harboring fear or apprehension about the future, eagerly anticipate the rapture. It's not something to dread, but it's something to embrace wholeheartedly. We must be ready when Jesus returns. So are you ready? Are you ready? You know, I prayed earlier led us in the salvation prayer, but I think it's important to do this one more time. But then we're also going to pray. I want to pray a prayer over everyone for steadfastness and readiness and faithfulness and sensibility in this time and in this season. That's what we need. That's what we need. Just, just nobody looking around right now. If I preach this sermon and you think, hey, I don't think I'm ready. Well, I've already done it once, but I'm going to do it again give you an opportunity to receive receive Jesus. Maybe you didn't lift your hand the first time. Maybe you weren't in here. But you need Jesus. Nobody's looking around, but let's count three. Will you lift your hand for me? Say, I need Jesus. One, two, three. Just lift it up for me. Lift it up for me. I'm going to believe. There are no hands, so I'm going to believe that everybody in this room is a believer. So stand with me. And I want you to receive this prayer, and then we're going to close with the song of worship. Because we're going to get our the worship gets our mind and our eyes back on the Lord. 
but I want you to receive this prayer first. We'll worship the Lord, and we'll leave this place feeling strong and full of His Spirit. Receive this prayer. Lord God, I pray for every person in this room. I pray that we will be people who will recognize the imminence of your return, Jesus, and that we will live lives of steadfastness and lives of readiness, God. God, that we will truly be faithful. God, we will be sensible. We will, we will operate in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and that your power, that your presence, and that your life will be upon us and the glory of God, the strength of God, and the favor of God will be upon us in every way. And I thank you for it, God. And I thank you, Lord, that when, when you return, even if it's today or next week, next month, or five years from now, God, God I just want to say I'm looking forward to it. I, I am comforted by what I have even preached today because I know it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful day, which is the beginning of an eternity like I cannot even begin to imagine. So I give you praise and honor, and we give you praise and honor today in the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said... Amen. Thank you for tuning in to the City Life Church podcast. I would love for you to attend one of our worship services right here in downtown Fort Worth. So if you'd like more information, simply go to citylifefw.org. God bless.